your Bibles. Uh, while you're doing that, let me also mention ladies' meeting on Tuesday night. Uh, ladies, if you want to come to that, uh, Bible studies on Tuesday evening. But if you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, and uh, this is our fifth message in the series on evangelism. And those of you that have been here for our Sunday nights over the past few weeks, you know that we've departed from verse-by-verse study for a little while to look specifically at the topic of evangelism. And um, in the future, we we may, on on Sunday nights, uh, instead of going back to verse-by-verse for a little while, do some topical things. I may decide to do that because I haven't decided exactly where we're going to end up after after this particular series, but we've been we've been preaching on evangelism, and you might say, well, why haven't you preached about that before, and why haven't you got to this subject a little bit earlier? Uh, certainly, it's a a topic that we as a church do very seriously need. Well, if you listen to our messages on Sunday mornings, especially, and uh, hear what how Jesus taught the disciples, and, and then hear what we have to say about these different things. You, all, you know that there's always an evangelistic appeal in the messages. We're, we're always trying to bring people to the cross of Christ because that's the only place that sinners can be saved. And I've chosen this subject tonight uh, in this particular scripture to help us to understand how that there are different people, different types of people that need to be talked to about the Lord, and specifically, I'm talking about different races and nationalities. Uh, Revelation tells us that there will be a great company of believers in heaven, and those will be made up of all kindreds of tongues and people and nations. And despite that information that we have about unity in heaven, there still exist a lot of divisions on the earth. And so we may shy away and be uncomfortable speaking to some people as as if their condition is worse than others and our time would be better spent with people that are more disposed to hear the gospel of Christ from us. Now, one thing that the Lord has never done, he's never given us any insight or any information about any predisposition of anyone towards the gospel of Christ. We are to preach it to all people, and God hasn't given us any human factors to consider in this. So when the disciples began preaching, though, that was perhaps the hardest mind-bending concept for them to grasp, that God has his people among all the peoples of the world, that every person is a potential believer. And as the disciples went out to preach, the only way they could tell if this person would believe is give them the gospel and see. Just tell them about Jesus Christ. Give them the same gospel. Now, if you are a student of the Word of God, then you're well acquainted with how that God dealt with people before the New Testament era. Um, Prior to Christ's coming, God only dealt with one people. I mean, specifically with one people. Now, there were Gentiles you find saved in the Old Testament on occasion, but primarily God was dealing with with one people, and he gave his special revelation to them. When God spoke to Abraham and called him out of Ur the Chaldees, uh, he said that I'm going to make you the father of many nations. But specifically, the nation that came from Abraham that we recognize is that Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And God, that's who God was working with. Now, the, the Old Testament does give us these instances where, where Gentile peoples would be called to salvation. There are scriptures that, that tell us that in the Old Testament. 
but the Jews largely misunderstood that. And it wasn't until Jesus came and then gave this information to the disciples, and they were still confused about it as well. But the message is that God was going to bring both Jew and Gentile under the new covenant. Now, here in Acts chapter 10... We see the prophecy of the Old Testament fulfilled, and there's a visible, a visible demonstration of, of God's plan and purpose for all people of the world. And that is in the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius. And the one that was sent to give the gospel to him was one of God's most prejudiced servants, and that was Peter. And he was told to preach the gospel to Gentile people. Now, this is a long chapter, and it'd be well worth our time to to read it all, but I'm not going to read all of this. I'm just going to fill you in on the first part of the chapter, and in just a moment, we're going to begin reading at verse number 21. And the story is about Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier. He was a centurion, and he was a leader of a group of Italian soldiers. Now, many of the soldiers in the Roman army were conscripted from out of the different provinces. But here we're specifically told, or a special notation is given, that Cornelius was from the Italian band. So that means that he was a native Roman, of course, from Italy. And these were the elite soldiers. Probably Cornelius was sent with some kind of a detail to guard the the, the governor or one of the heads of government that was in that area. Many times the Roman soldiers, the centurions especially, were very hardened men. They were battle-tested men, and often they really lacked compassion. And, and that's just because of the nature of the, of the types of battles that they had been through the, and the general disdain that they had for people that they considered to be barbarians. But as we read this, in the second verse of the chapter, Cornelius is noted as being a different sort of man. It says that he was devout, that he believed in God, and he was seeking God. And he taught his family to not to live in that lifestyle, this debauched lifestyle of the Romans. And we learn in the opening verses also that there was an angel that appeared to him and told him that God recognized his prayers and for him to send someone to Joppa, that's about 30 miles south of where this centurion was in Caesarea. And he was to send somebody to Joppa to fetch Peter. And Peter would tell him or give him the gospel by which he could be saved or tell him what he needed to do. Now, just as a side note to that, we, we may have questions here about how did God answer this man's prayers? And we might wonder, was he somebody that was already saved? I mean, it says he was devout, he was seeking God. Well, if you read over in the 11th chapter, verse number 14, you'll find there that Peter was sent to him to give him words by which he could be saved. So how is it then that God heard the prayer of this man? Well, God put it, I think, into his heart to seek. And if you want to call that the sinner's prayer that he prayed, then this is what a real sinner's prayer is. And that's when a person, uh, God is already working in that person's heart and the person seeks the Lord with the intent that he's going to give up all things, give everything up in order to find help for his troubled soul. God hears those kinds of prayers. And this would be a person that's much like what we discussed in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the uh, treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price, that that's someone who has the intent of giving up all, giving up everything to find the thing that brings him full satisfaction and peace with God. Well, so far, so good. But the person that's sent for is Peter. 
And Peter is still in this mindset that Gentiles are outsiders. They're not welcome into the covenant of grace. And so Peter was not ready to go preach to Gentiles. But God was providentially working behind the scenes. And that's the way that God always works. God is never surprised. Uh, He's never flustered about things because he is the one who orchestrates the repentance and faith of every person. And he puts into the path of the person that he wants to save someone who has the gospel for them. And so in order for this to happen, God had to work with Peter as much as he did with Cornelius. So how is it that God put it into the frame of mind of Peter to go to Caesarea and speak to a Gentile soldier? Well, I hope you take time to read the story. you find that in verses 9 through 16. And just very briefly, what God did was to let a, a great sheet down from heaven. And in that sheet were all different sorts of animals that were considered to be unclean and were forbidden for Jews to eat. But Peter was commanded by the voice from heaven, God said, to rise. It said to Peter, rise and and kill those things and eat those things. And Peter, being a good Jew that only ate things that were kosher, wouldn't do it. And so he said, I'm not going to eat anything. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. Well, he was commanded again. And God said, Peter, eat it. I've cleansed it. Don't, Don't you call common or unclean what I've cleansed. And then that sheet of animals was taken back up into heaven. That happened three times. And Peter did not understand what the vision meant until at the very precise moment of that, after that vision was done, there came a knock on the door. And there were these men from Caesarea that had been sent by Cornelius, and they came to fetch Peter and take him to see him. Now, here's where we want to start, verse number 21. If you take your Bible, and we're going to read quite a few verses here. Acts 10, verse number 21 Then Peter went down to the men which were sent, that were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And and I I wish I had time to preach this entire passage here, but there you see that God's already working on Peter because he asked these Gentiles to come in. And that's something the Jews just didn't mix with the Gentiles in that way, but God's already working on him. On the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow after, they entered into Caesarea. And Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, And fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for. I asked, therefore, for what intent have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter, 
He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh, he shall speak unto thee. There are lots of interesting things in this passage. I, I hardly can resist the attempts to, to comment on this as we go by. But here you find Peter was staying in the house of a man, Simon, who was a tanner who lived by the seaside. Well, is that significant? Everything in the Word of God has some significance to it. He was a living by the seaside because that was the easiest place to dispose of dead bodies, and Jews couldn't be con, con, uh, in contact with dead bodies. And so the tanner, the one who killed animals, they just took things out and threw them into the sea. Well, that's interesting. Maybe you would call that trivia for your information. So where were we here? Where do we leave off? Um, Send therefore to Joppa and call, verse 32, hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon, a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here, present before God, to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, I wish that you could just really understand how monumental that this story is in the life of Peter. I don't think that there's any of us that really grasp just the amount of prejudice that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Now, for Peter, this was this to take this step of faith and to go to Caesarea to speak to a Gentile person took a supernatural act of God. And a supernatural act of God is what he got because there was an angel that appeared to Cornelius and there was the Holy Spirit that was involved in sending a message down to him in this special dream that he had. Now, there had to be just divine intervention for for Peter who had this ingrained feeling in him being taught all this time about the Gentiles and then I mean in the Gentile to the Gentiles in general but then for him specifically to go to this man one who was a a a part of the Roman army that occupied Israel I mean this was really a monumental thing for Peter to actually go and speak to this Gentile Cornelius 
But in the story, we find that it all comes down to essential, the essential elements that exist in all presentations of the gospel, that there's not a different gospel that's needed for different people. There's, there's not a, a certain racial mixture that you have, uh, to have to have in people that's needed. Salvation works the same as it always has. It's by faith in Jesus Christ, no matter, no matter where that person comes from, no matter who he is. Now, we want to notice, first of all, this evening, the method of the gospel. And there, there are two very important people involved in this story. And you, and you can't have a, have a happy conclusion without either of these. One is, one is a man that is lost. He's in need of the Savior. And one is a man who is saved and has the ability to give him all the information that he needs to be right with God. So you have one man who is seeking and one man who is sent. And there in, in those two personalities, you find the ingredients for the method of the gospel. Now, what we all need to understand is that the gospel works. It always accomplishes what it was intended to do. But the gospel doesn't work unless it's used and done. Everything that happens according to God's determined plan. Now, the gospel actually requires two things in this sense for it to work. And the first one is that it requires a sinner. And that seems like an obvious statement. It requires a sinner. And I don't want to be known as somebody who, is, who is, has great talent for stating the obvious. But the method of the gospel is, first of all, that people recognize that they are sinners. And the gospel is not for people who aren't sinners. Well, Jesus said essentially the same in Luke 5.32. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus wasn't teaching that there are some that are already righteous, and so they have no need of repentance. He simply meant that before a person can come to him, he has to recognize that need for the Savior. Now, the Bible teaches that all people are lost, all people are depraved. It says by nature that we're against God, and as a result of that, we are under God's condemnation. But there's no one who's going to come to Christ for salvation until he understands that the sins that he has committed are against God and that he needs forgiveness for those sins. So what Jesus meant is those that believe that they're righteous already will never hear the call. And so Cornelius was a man seeking God because obviously he recognized there is something missing in his life. Now his friends and his neighbors, according to what we've read here, called him a good man. They said, here's a just man, a good man. And they looked at what he had done. They saw the money that he gave to the poor. And the alms, the alms it says, that he gave. And we see in the story then that a good person, what the world considers to be a good person, even a moral person in some respects, still needs the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul is an example of this in one way. He was, he was a very deeply, deeply religious person. He was educated in all the finer points of, of Jewish law. But that learning did not make him righteous with God. In John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, who was a prominent ruler of the Jews. And he recognized something about Jesus. He saw that he wasn't common and saw that he was a master teacher. But he had not yet come to the understanding of saving faith. In Luke chapter 18, you have the rich man who was very diligent about keeping all of the Mosaic and all the Pharisaical laws. And so most people would have put him on the side of the ledger that here is a person who is on his way to heaven. 
But we learn in that scripture that he was also a man that was in need of the gospel. So all of those scriptures teach us that no matter how good that we think we are, that the gospel was tailor-made to reach us. And in order for that to be effective, there has to be, there has to be a sinner. And, and all sinners, all people are sinners, so that consequently means that the gospel is a gospel for all people. The second requirement in the method of the gospel is that requires a saint. See, the gospel has this peculiar requirement that there has to be a messenger. There needs to be someone willing to bring the message. Now, the gospel is powerful. Paul said it's so powerful that, it, that it's the power of God unto salvation. But the truth of the gospel never helped anybody and never was a power to anybody except those who have learned about it and have obeyed it go and tell other people about it. And there are a world of candidates that are out there for the gospel of Christ because all of them meet condition A. That is, they're sinners. So the method of gospel is not going to work until we decide that we are going to take it to sinners that need it. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. He gave us the commission in Mark 16, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so the gospel is not going to do anyone any good until it's brought to them by a saint, that is, a saved person who is obedient to this command. And I want you to notice that when I, when I say that, I didn't say that the gospel requires a pastor or the gospel requires a deacon or the gospel requires a seminary graduate. The gospel requires a saint. And a saint is anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. We all have that responsibility to be a part of God's method. So the gospel then is not to be hidden. It's not to be kept inside the four walls of the church. But the gospel is to be lived. It's to be breathed every day by every born-again believer. So God's method is in you. Salvation requires a sinner and a saint and if you aren't one, then you're the other. If you're not a saint, you're an ain't. You've got to be one or the other. Now, the second lesson that we learn in the passage is the message of the gospel. And there's some very important elements that make this message affected. But before we get to the elements, I just want to go off on a little bit of a side note here for just a moment and uh, notice something about this, that how anxious, first of all, that Cornelius was to hear the message now, perhaps, I don't know about this, and I don't mean to read anything into the text, but perhaps uh, Cornelius may have heard something about Peter previously. When uh, the angel told him to go send somebody to find Peter, then uh, either uh, probably God directed every step where they were supposed to go to find him in that house. It may be that, that Cornelius had heard something about miracles that Peter had done. I don't know. But in verse number 25, it says, And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down his feet and worshipped him. Now, Cornelius was anxious to hear what Peter had to say, but he was not ready to make uh, the right kind of connections between Peter and the angel. He, he didn't make the connection, proper connections between angels and God's servants. And so in gratitude, 
And in reverence for the man of God, it says he fell down to worship him. And there's quite a bit of argument about what that means, whether it really means that he intended to give worship to a man, and that's doubtful because he, he knew uh, to, enough to worship God. He, he knew that he was supposed to do that. But he, but he wasn't really informed about the intermediaries here, about angels, about the men of God, and so forth. And so in verse 26 it says, But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. So Peter refused that worship. So if you want to know what the proper protocol is to receive the man of God, it's no protocol at all. We are men that are saved by the grace of God. So we don't deserve any worship. We don't deserve any obedience. And so Baptists for years have taken that scripture to prove that it's sinful for the Roman Catholics to bow to the Pope or any of its prelates and give them any honor. And you probably know this about me. I disdain the use even of the word reverend. I don't even want to use that word. Now, I expect that you would respect my position, but I'm not any closer to God than anybody else here. Now, I have heard, had people come to me and say, oh, Pastor, I really need you, like, kind of like pointing the finger at me. I need you to pray for me because you are closer to God than anybody. I wish that was true. I really do wish that was true. I know it's not. I don't deserve that kind of recognition. I don't reserve any kind of glory for this. All the glory for what we do goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Baptists have stood against being honored in that way. But there's a new phenomena that's, has, that's arose, arisen in, in our Baptist churches today, and, and many Baptist preachers now adopt it, that they love the adulation of people. They love to be praised. They love standing ovations. They like for somebody to clap for them. Well, what would Peter and Paul do to such displays? I don't think they would stand for it. I think in humility they would say, stop what you're doing. I also am a man. I think there are a lot of pastors that need to memorize this, this, these scriptures as well as their evangelism verses like pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or in 1 Corinthians, wherefore let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. So we all need to remember this. We are servants of Christ. We are on an errand for him. This is not an errand for our glory. All the glory belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, in, back to the text then. In a very short message, Peter gave essentials concerning the, the message of the gospel. Now, I'm going to quickly give you ten points. And you're going to say, goodness sakes, a message with ten points. We're going to be here all night. Now, I promise you it's going gonna, it's gonna to go quickly here. Well, we'll get through these rather quickly. What, what's the first thing that we find in, in Peter's message? Well, the first of it is in verse 34, that all people may come. He says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. You know, the best way that Peter could begin this message to a Gentile audience, the best way is to start out that I'm not superior to you. I'm not superior to you. Now, the prevailing opinion among the Jews is that they were superior. They were to separate from Gentiles, and they denied Gentiles could be saved. But the truth of the matter is, what we find here, there is no person ineligible for the gospel of Christ. And so Peter just broke the mold of prejudice in the very first statement. Of a, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Later on, Paul said to the Athenians, And the time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So God doesn't 
refuse a person on the basis of his race, not nationality, not economics, not his social standing. The gospel is a universal gospel to be given to all people, and all people who believe it will be saved. Now, that's the interpretation of the vision of this great sheet that contains all the unclean animals. That's to say that people do not have to be Jewish. They don't have to go through any type of ceremonial cleansing before they can receive or believe the gospel of Christ. So Peter sees Cornelius and his family and the interest that they have in the gospel, and it dawned on him, this is what God meant by that message of the the animals that were in the sheet. And so the, the, the picture becomes clear. The gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. Everybody needs to hear about Jesus. Secondly, God promotes righteousness, verse number 35. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now, folks, here is something that's needed more in preaching today. And that is the law is absent from much preaching as if grace has done away with God's law. Now, we notice here that Peter says that you must work righteousness to be accepted with God. Now, now, hear me out, and don't get excited before you, before you hear everything I have to say here. God expects holy living from his people. Now, the world rejects the right lifestyle. Then they, they sin, they disrespect God, and all of that is tolerated. But what Christian people need to know, what is it that God expects from me? How does God ex- expect me to live? Now, we need to understand that the Bible teaches two very clear things about Christians. One is the fact that we are righteous, and the other is that we do righteousness. Now, the first one has to do with justification, justification by faith alone. That is, that is being, that is being righteous. That's when God declares you to be righteous. The second part of that, which necessarily and is inextricably connected to it, and you don't have one without the other, and that is sanctification. That is, God expects us to be made righteous in Christ. That's our sanctification. So, unholy lives are uncharacteristic of believers. God's people live holy lives. He says you are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, that's an important thing. Don't try to, you know, people try to separate justification and sanctification to the place that they're two separate things that you receive at different times. They are two separate doctrines, two very clearly different things, but you can't have one without the other. You can't be justified without being sanctified. God, that's the way God works. Thirdly, peace comes by Jesus. Verse number 36, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now, in the first announcement of the first advent, the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus came to fulfill that scripture. Now, eventually, he will bring peace over all of the earth. Now, you're not to think that, well, peace comes by the United Nations. The United Nations is a huge failure at bringing peace to the world. I mean, don't expect that. They're, they're a miserable failure at it. Don't expect that there's going... <laughs> don't expect the... Spoken like... Uh, I won't say. Um, Republican or something like that? An independent, libertarian or whatever. Okay, there you go. So we're, we're not to expect 
peace in the world in that sense, and we don't expect that Israel's ever going to get along with its neighbors. It's not going to happen. I mean, the Bible's very clear about that. That's not going to happen till after the tribulation and we get into the millennial reign. See, it is impossible for there to be peace among men unless there is perfect government by Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can have peace. So, even though that's the only way that mankind experiences peace, the Bible does teach that the individual can experience peace right now. And that is when we are reconciled to God. This is when we have personal peace with God. Paul said in Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Fourth point, Jesus is preeminent. Verse number 36 in the last part. Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And I think the Bible is clear about this, that there is no salvation where Jesus is not Lord. And that's why we reject easy believism. And that's why we reject preaching that doesn't emphasize that people must repent of all of their sins. See, Jesus never allowed for a moment that there could be something that would be kept and put up above him, that there's something more valuable than him. When a person comes to Christ, he surrenders all to him as Lord. Sin has to be abandoned. And God's will has to be enthroned. And the demonstration of the lordship of Christ in the believer's life is the fruit that is produced. And where there is no fruit of regeneration, there is no regeneration. And when I speak of fruit, I'm not talking necessarily about your soul winning. That is a fruit, one of the fruits. There are many fruits of regeneration. And we find those in gifts of the Spirit and so on and, and uh, acts of God such as we find in Galatians 5.22, where God works in the heart of people. Fifthly, I'd say we're moving fairly quickly here, God's word is prominent. That's verse 37. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now, any time that God's work is done, God's word is going to be front and center. Now, in the book of Acts, you always find the apostles' preaching is saturated with the Word of God. When Jesus preached, he quoted Old Testament Scripture. Now, he was God. He was quoting his own words, you might say. But when we cease to use God's Word, when that no longer becomes prominent, that's when the gospel becomes perverted. And it is just alarming how many churches have departed from the preaching of the Word. Now you have all kinds of parties and promotions and social activities and games, but little to none of the preaching of the Word of God. And so consequently, you have sermons that are stories that are strung together with a scripture here and there or no scripture at all. And I'll just tell you, the Word has to have a prominent place in every one of our services. Sixthly, the works of Jesus are plentiful. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Now, it seems kind of silly that we would say, well, Jesus had a good productive ministry. Do we need to say that? Are we being foolish to emphasize the goodness of Jesus' ministry? That seems like something we shouldn't even need to do. But why the, by the way that Jesus was treated then, and by the way that he's pushed out of our society now, you would think that Jesus was an extremely bad influence on people. I mean, you, you tried to encourage our government to, 
to consider principles of righteousness and, and, and that'll somehow make things better. Now, of course, they need to know Christ, but, you know, the world would be a better place if somehow you could enact, could enact biblical principles. I don't think it can happen. But when you tell the government, well, let's do something to, you know, try to help things, what do you get from them? Well, you get another nightclub. And you get another liquor store license. You get more pornography. You get more same. You get same-sex marriages. You get legalized gambling, and on it goes. We look at the works of Jesus that are plentiful. They're un- indisputably beneficial. And man's evil works keep overwhelming us. And what they do is they stoke the furnaces of hell seven times hotter. And you know what Christians are saying in the midst of all of that? Make the sermon seven times shorter. And that's our answer. Seventhly, Jesus was punished for our sins, verses 39 and 40. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Do you realize the foundation of the gospel is in those verses? Christ died for our sins and he arose from the grave. He was hanged on a tree. The blood of Christ flowed out for the redemption of sin. But you have people that say, oh, no, we can't preach that because that's too barbaric. We can't talk about blood. We can't, we can't uh, include that in our messages. That's just too sickening to talk about blood. And when people take the blood out of this, they've removed the only means by which sinners can be saved. You take away the cross and you take away the blood and there's no hope for people. Well, you can fill up the church by doing preaching something else. Bring all the tares in that you want and you might as well give them a ball game while you're at it because that's as good for the salvation of their souls as anything else. A bloodless gospel is not any better than a ball game to save people. Eighthly, the authenticity of Jesus is provable. Verses 39, 40, and 43. 39 says, And we are witnesses of all things. Verse 40, Him God raised up and showed him openly. Verse 43, To him give all the prophets witness. So Peter says there's this huge impressive list of witnesses to the ministry of Christ. He is not some phantom. He's not a fantasy. He's not like the cults who have no witnesses, no verifiable proof, nothing worth believing. With Jesus, when you talk about him, the proofs of what he did and who he was are abundant. Paul said to King Agrippa, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. John wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. It's all provable, all verifiable. Ninthly, we are to proclaim Christ, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Now the apostles were told to preach and they were told what to preach. Don't go out and preach yourselves preach Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And so what we do when we give the gospel to people is we just stand back in the background, let Jesus be lifted up, stand behind the cross. Now, do you see what Peter is saying here? You know, there are lots of people that like to talk around the cross, and they want to talk about the love of God, but they don't want to preach judgment. You ever thought about 
the very first thing that John the Baptist said and Jesus said when they started preaching? No, the very first thing they said? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. The first thing they said was repent. And what's repentance all about? Why? Why repent? Because of the wrath of God, because of judgment. So the first thing in a gospel presentation is what I said earlier. Make people aware that they've sinned against God. The first thing you have to understand, you're a sinner on the bound for hell. There is judgment coming. And when you talk about the cross, that's what it's all about. The cross is a place of judgment. And the Bible says that Jesus is the judge of the quick. That means he's the judge of the living. He's going to be judge of you, of all of us who are Christians, and the dead. And the dead there means those who do not believe in him. He will be judge of them also. Tenthly and lastly, something you really need to know, the gospel is powerful. Verse number 43, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him, shall receive remission of sins. So the climax of Peter's message is the truth that salvation is only found in Christ, and if you will believe, it, will, it has the power of the forgiveness of sins. So the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not something that's ever been abated. I mean, this thing is not something that has decreased over time. It still has the power to bring sinful man and righteous God together. It's the only thing that will. It's the justification of the sinner and the salvation of his soul. So I look at those things and I say, well, you know, those are some mighty good peas that are found in that message. It's a gospel for all people because it has the power to change any person's life. Jew, Gentile, bond-free, male, female, it doesn't make any difference. It can change anybody's life. Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. And look what God did to him. So we see the method of the gospel and the message of the gospel. Now we're left with the effects that it had on Cornelius and his household. Verse 44 says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. Now lastly, this last point, very quickly, the magnification of the gospel. Now when Peter preached, the Holy Spirit grabbed these people. And this is what happens when the gospel is preached by God's saints in truth. The Holy Spirit takes that preached word and he makes it effectual. That, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. He, he, he starts to work in the heart of the sinner to change him. And when God does this, when the Holy Spirit is in charge of doing that, that's the way that God receives the glory. Now, do you understand this? And, and make, make sure you do, that, that salvation is by divine prerogative. So what the, what the Word of God emphasizes is the power of the Word and not the power of the soul winner. It magnifies the work of the Holy Spirit, not the good sense of the hearers. And it's that way so nobody can boast about their salvation because anything that man can take credit for, he will. Rest assured of that. If you, could, if you had anything to do with your salvation, you'll take credit for it. The Scriptures... Show us it's the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. It's not necessarily the willingness of people to believe. Nobody's willing to believe. It, it takes Holy Spirit work. Now, can you remember that when you speak to people about the gospel? That it's God's work. If anything is to be accomplished, God has to do it. And what he does, he uses you, that's God's work, and he works in the center at the same time Make that person receptive to the gospel of Christ. He works on both ends of this. And that's an important thing to remember. All of it is God's work.
Now, we add the 45th verse. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I always think about this, that when people get saved, that is astonishing. I've known some people in my life that we would say, boy, they you just wouldn't think they could ever get saved. I mean, looking at humanly speaking, some of the worst people that you'd ever want to meet. And I'm not saying I'm good or you're good or anybody else, but you've met those people that they have a testimony of faith in Christ that what they did before they were saved was almost mind-boggling sometimes. And so this was kind of how the Jews looked when they saw Gentiles saved. It's just mind-boggling. How could God save a Gentile? You know, some people say, why doesn't God save everybody? And, and I'm still stuck on this. Why does God save anybody? I don't, know, I don't know why. Well, thank him for this, though. Anybody means you and me. He saves anybody, and that means you and me. And so he says, anybody that comes and will plunge into the fountain under the wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, like that song we sang a few minutes ago, great song, Whiter Than Snow, Wash Me, and I Shall Be Whiter Than Snow. Everybody who takes the plunge under the blood of Jesus Christ will be cleansed from all of their sins. But you know something? They have to be brought there. They have to be brought to the foot of the cross. And that's what Peter did with Cornelius. He preached Christ crucified, Christ risen from the dead, You have to bring them to the cross to see that. And that's what God wants us to do. We've got to be the people that give the gospel to other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learn in these scriptures. And we're thankful that we do have a gospel that we don't have to pick and choose among people and say, this one uh, can receive it, this one can't, this one's good enough, that one's not. Because we know, Lord, that none of us is deserving of your grace. None of us has anything to claim in ourselves. But all of us are sinners that need you. We thank you, Lord, that you've spoken that truth to our hearts. And you have saved us by your marvelous grace. And we know, Lord, that now that you've saved us, you want us to have it in our heart tell somebody else when something so miraculous has happened to us why why would we not want to make that known to others that we come in contact with lord help us to be witnesses of your gospel to give people jesus christ bring them to the cross help us to do that every day in jesus name we pray amen